Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Viggo Mortensen, from Cronenberg and The Lord of the Rings to his directing debut with Falling. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. First time guest, one of the best actors in the business, Viggo Mortensen, is the main event on today's edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Uh, Somebody I've wanted to have on for a long while. He actually doesn't work a tremendous amount. He's kind of like in that Maybe not the rarefied Daniel Day-Lewis frequency of of uh, acting gigs, but he is very selective in what he does. So maybe the opportunities haven't come as often as I'd like. Though, of course, a couple of years back, he did get nominated for Green Book. Uh, that was his most recent kind of um, celebrated role uh, in the film that won Best Picture, of course, a couple of years back. He is always fantastic, um, a, a consummate chameleon, a guy that can virtually do anything, whether it's a, you know, kind of a heroic leading man performance in Word of the Rings, um, these kind of transformative performances for the likes of David Cronenberg. Um, he is somebody that always just pops off the screen, and I've, I have just such respect for his his career, his intellect, as you'll hear. He's a, he's a deep guy, a smart guy. Um, and and this was a really thoughtful conversation. He is now also, worth mentioning, a director. This is his directing debut, long in the making. He's wanted to make a film for a long time. It's hard even for someone like Viggo Mortensen to get a film off the ground, but he has finally done it, and, and it's a great piece of work. I got a chance to see this one a, a while back last year, actually, at, at Sundance, and then I saw it again recently. The film is called Falling. Viggo stars in it alongside... Lance Henriksen, you'll hear us sing his praises in this too, because, you know, if you love film and TV the last uh, 30 years, you love Lance Henriksen, especially if you love his genre stuff. I mean, my God, when I was growing up and he popped up in, you know, Jim Cameron movies, he's the best. Um, but but yeah, this, this, this movie though, this specific movie, Falling... It's a tough one. It's 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 a sad one. It's a it's a kind of a character study. It's a film about memory and loss. Um, Lance Henriksen plays uh, the dad of Vigo's character, and he's suffering from dementia. And not only is he suffering from dementia, he's he's not the best guy. He's a racist. He's a homophobe. He's he's got a lot of demons, and um, not the best dad. But you know, it's still it's still an empathetic portrait because at the end of the day he's also this character's dad and I know this is a very personal story to Vigo while not a portrait of his own dad it is something that reflects a lot of his own memories of his parents both of his parents suffered from dementia um you know I I talked to him uh, you know I mentioned to him in this conversation as you guys know I lost my dad in this last year and he had some of those that that kind of like uh, that dementia at the end so it was a you know, kind of a powerful piece for me to watch. Um, and and yeah, I, I definitely highly recommend it for the performances of Vigo and, and Lance Henriksen. Falling is out on February 5th this Friday. So seek it out. And, uh, and this conversation covers a lot. It covers the, his great collaborations with David Cronenberg over the year, years. Uh, History of Violence, Eastern Promises, A Dangerous Method. Uh, sounds like they're going to be working again together soon-ish. That's very exciting to me. We, of course, talk a bit about Lord of the Rings, the film that billions around the world celebrate him for, uh, and also about some some of the reasons why 
um, you know, he hasn't done another like big franchise like superhero film. He's been mentioned a lot for those films. So I actually ran down kind of the list that I've heard, and he uh, he confirmed and denied a few things. So stay tuned for that. Um, so that's the main event today. Other things to mention: Stir Crazy on Comedy Central. My uh, my silly series for Comedy Central continues with a couple episodes this week. Um, kind of supporting, priming the pump for the Super Bowl this Sunday. I'm not the world's biggest football fan. I'm a, ca- I'm a very casual football fan. I can sit down and watch any football game and enjoy it and catch up. I know the biggest, you know, the big names. But um, it was fun to record two episodes for this coming week. One of them is up already. Rob Riggle, uh, one of my favorite comedians, just a good guy and an, like an uber Kansas City Chiefs fan. So he is very excited about the big game this Sunday. So you can check out that episode that's already up on Comedy Central's uh, YouTube and Facebook channels. Also coming later this week, a bonus episode of Stir Crazy. I got a chance to talk to uh, Fox sportscaster Erin Andrews, someone who I didn't know personally. I mean, I've, I've seen her work, uh, but she was delightful. So game, so fun, a different kind of guest for Stir Crazy, but uh, fun to mix it up with her and talk football and um, and a bunch of uh, you know silly games as is required when you come on Stir Crazy. So that's the Stir Crazy side of things. Other things to mention. Oh, I do want to mention one other film that's coming this Friday on Netflix that I highly recommend. Malcolm and Marie. You may have heard of this. This is a film that was shot in quarantine in the last year. It's a two-hander. It's Zendaya and John David Washington. It's written and directed by Sam Levinson of Euphoria fame. Um, Gorgeous to look at. Well done, well shot. Really meaty roles for these two actors. Zendaya coming off an Emmy win is just spectacular in this. I think she could very well be in the Oscar hunt. John David Washington, also exceptional. You know, he's been on the podcast recently. I did some stuff with him for MTV for Tenet. Uh, a much different kind of performance than Tenet. Tenet, he showed off as kind of action-leading man. Uh, aside, this is, again, more of like a, a really chewy role for an actor. Long monologues, really uh, deep personal stuff. It's basically just about a, um, a relationship. You know, those long arguments that go deep into the night in a relationship sometimes. And uh, I was thoroughly... Um, entertained by it. I think it's a, a really good piece of work. So that's this Friday on Netflix. I, I highly recommend Malcolm and Marie. All right, that's Josh's pick of the week. Um, let's get to the main event. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Spread the good word uh, and enjoy this chat. Oh, here's one, here's one more sidebar. And I mentioned this in the conversation. I taped this literally as the inauguration was happening. <laughs> so like, actually our scheduled time was as Biden was about to be sworn in. Um, and Vigo actually asked to kind of wait a few minutes uh, because thankfully he wanted to watch the speech just as I did. So this is the very first um, celebrity interview ever conducted during the Biden administration. <laughs> so there's a little bit of commentary around that because it was so fresh in our minds. So that's that's a little context for you. Anyway, here's me and Vigo. Hope you guys enjoy. Hey there. Hey, how's it going? Good. Sorry about that. Were you watching as well? Of course. I, yeah, when this when this was scheduled, I was like, oh, shit. Are we both going to miss the uh, the inaugural dress? So I was relieved that you wanted to watch, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, well, thanks for taking the time out today, Vigo. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been a long admirer of your work, and I, and I very much um, appreciate this movie. I saw this over a year ago. I saw this at Sundance, sir. Oh, so. you did. I'm glad Have we... Have you been able to watch it again since then? I did, actually. I watched it again, oh, and it's... Um, because the country has changed and the world has changed, especially our country. And so 
Well, yes. In my mind, the movie, in a way, the, com the conflicts and the, the problem of communication, it's not just a problem, it's, it's like another pandemic, really, <laughs> for communication. And that's been made really clear in the last couple of months, for sure. The movie is, <clears throat> is timely and more timely even, in a way I didn't, I guess I dreaded, but I didn't expect it to be this bad but let's see what happens. Yeah, and I, I have to say, and we can get into this, uh, you know, another huge aspect of the film. Um, you know, I lost my dad in the, in, the, in the last few months, not to COVID, but, um, and he experienced dementia at the end, and I'd never seen that firsthand. And so I, this, this certainly hit me a, in a much, much different way. Um, Did it ring true to you? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I mean, you know, thankfully, it was, it was it was relatively brief in in my personal experience, but it was a shock to the system to see what uh, personality changes and to see what worked and didn't work. I mean, I for me, I, I became like the person in my family that kind of like rode with the, you know, the the um the flights of fancy, and that was the only way to kind of keep him at bay. I mean, for you, I know this is this is very personal to you. You've experienced That's dementia in your family, right? Yeah, but that what you just said, but going with them, basically. Yeah. yeah, that's wise of you because a lot of people make mistakes. And at the very beginning, in my first experiences decades ago with it, you know, I had this impulse, which I think most people do, especially if it's someone they're close to that they know well and they know their history, like a parent. Um, <clears throat> you tend to want to correct them, get them back on the right path, so to speak, or something. Yeah. And that's the worst thing you can do. You know, you have to kind of sacrifice your own needs and ego because that's really what it is. You know, if your father or your mother or whoever it is has dementia talking to you, you know, about, let's say they just had lunch with a good friend uh, and they tell you about that. And you know that that person has been dead 30 or 40 years. Yeah. You have an impulse to say, no, they're gone. That could, you couldn't have had lunch, you know. You're thinking you're helping, you're not helping them at all because then that person dies anew for them. Exactly. They weren't confused until you corrected them, you know what I mean? And so you have to think, who are you serving? If you really want to serve them, then you have to give up your needs for them to adapt to what you feel the present is and who knows what the present really is. Who knows what the past is? I mean, memory is very subjective. Um, it really is and it evolves. Our recollections evolve and we sort of try to control the past in order to feel comfortable in the present. So it's all kind of subjective, really. <clears throat> Sometimes in big ways, um, we alter our own stories. So who's to say that their reality and their, and their present, the way they see, feel, and hear it, is any less valid than yours, for one thing. And for another, if you're really trying to help someone, then instead of saying, no, you couldn't have had lunch with that person because they're dead 30 years, you say, in, the, in keeping with what you said, you know, follow their flights of fancy, so to speak. You say, uh, maybe, what did you have for lunch? Yeah. And then you yeah. have a conversation. What's the harm in that? The harm in it is for you and your ego. That, exactly. well, I have to give up what I think reality is. What Sorry, we were really concerned about in the movie was getting that right. Because I, as you, you brought, I, I have had a lot of experience with it. Both my parents, my stepdad. Mm -hmm three of my four grandparents, aunts, uncles. I mean, I've seen it up close for decades and in 
the last decade really up close and even in a caregiving capacity with constant exposure to it and seeing its evolution, the disease of dementia, um, which is different in different people and it's different for each person each day. You have to be flexible, which you should be in any relationship, really. You should serve the other person if they're supposed to be your friend, but we don't always do that. We want people to be the way we think they should be. Um, but the more we give that up, the better the relationship is and the more we learn about the other person, you know, uh, the more we understand them. And I think that this is something, I mean, it was important for me to get that right in terms of how dementia really functions and memory in a way, from my experience, compared to, you know, a lot of movies, if not all of them, really, even the good depictions more or less show someone who's regularly confused sometimes all the time. And then they show their point of view or strive to show what it's like to be them. Sometimes they do that in movies or plays. It tends to be a confused point of view. And, and my experience is that it is us. It is we, the observers, who are confused, not, not the person afflicted, you know. So that was one thing. But the other was just wanting to explore memory in many different ways, how memory is subjective, memories of different people in this story. And, and like I say, the problems of communication, you know, um, that we have, we see manifested in our society so much right now, not just politicians, but just people on the street, everybody within families, for sure. It's always there. There's always a danger of tribalism and, you know, out of ignorance, out of fear, uh, uncertainty, we marginalize people. We don't see them. We don't want to see them, you know, and I was asking myself a question, one of the questions I was asking myself trying to tell this story, I'm not so much about giving answers at all. I, I'd rather just pose questions and see where it takes us, you know. Uh, is that the question of whether there are some people that we just can't communicate with, that we shouldn't, or that, that people that don't deserve to be communicated with, that's a question. I don't know. In my opinion, no, that's, there's no such thing. And, and how do you get past something that's a pandemic now, really? A communication pandemic. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess that's what Biden was trying to address in some way, but you, you get it by listening. Yeah, start empathy. By listening, yeah. But not listening in order to prepare your response, you know, or attack. You know, that's a different thing, that sort of know thine enemy so you can like, no, true Amen. understanding, true, Listen yes. to understand, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and for those listening, we are, we are taping this literally like two minutes after Biden has just um, yeah, assumed the yeah. presidency. And it's, it's a, you know, it's true. It's a fascinating moment. It's been a frustrating time for a lot of people for many different reasons. And, you know, one of the other interesting aspects of this film that kind of dovetails with what you're talking about, you know, a lot of us have been kind of confronting in recent years, ugliness in all its forms. And, and, and this is a portrait of a man that that is an ugly man at times in many ways. The the character that Lance plays. I mean, these there's sexism, there's racism, there's homophobia, um, but there is empathy and and an attempt at understanding. And I'm curious. I mean, this again. I know this isn't a portrait of your dad, but you must have seen these things growing up. I assume you must have seen all well, aspects. I've seen people like that. And as I was fine tuning the script and we were preparing to shoot. I was watching, you know, the president of the United States, the now ex-president of the United States, engage in that kind of behavior and language almost on a daily basis. 
sometimes veiled, but often not veiled at all. Right. And, and it, it, it inspires a sort of la- dangerous and lazy kind of uh, behavior. You know, it's a lot easier to just condemn ignorantly than it is to think. It takes, it takes more energy. It takes more patience. It takes more effort to think. And what, what we need to do is think, listen, consider, rather than just attack the unknown, yeah. uh, vilify, uh, marginalize, you know. And uh, my dad wasn't Willis. <clears throat> you know, my mom was more like Gwen, the mother, than my dad was like Willis. Um, the inspiration for the story really was my mom. It was after her funeral that I started writing this story, which became a fiction rapidly, you know. Um, there are some elements taken from, you know, the dementia aspect of the story and also some of the childhood memories. Um, there are some fragments of conversation. There's the inspiration is real feelings and my own subjective memories from my childhood, adolescence, mm-hmm. and my experience with dementia as an adult with my parents and others um which is why i dedicated the movie even though it's a fiction i dedicated it to my two brothers charles and walter out of respect because they shared you know that upbringing they shared right. some of those events and they, they would remember they would see echoes of certain moments of our shared lives you know in in this story i don't know i mean it just it seems to me generally never more so so than now it's it's important to try to find a way to accept others as they are to accept oneself as one is it's not just willis that has to like be different in john's eyes yeah well he has to just be who he is and john also has to think about what he's doing how much is too much you have to give a person freedom You, you have to first really see them and understand them, accept them before you can start trying to tinker with them. You know, I mean, the, we have this habit of wanting to make people the way we think they should be. And I think right. that's always a mistake. And, you know, this is, it's never easy to accept oneself as one is, uh, especially if you've spent most of your life in, in disagreement with someone and that's your focus. If it seems that there's no way to reach a compromise with them, um, when you feel that a person doesn't see you as you are, doesn't accept you, is it's difficult to remain open-minded about them, to accept right. them. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter in the end who gives in and who makes the kind or, or forgiving gesture. What's important is that um, that there is a gesture, that the gesture is made. You know, if it, if it's if it's snowing or raining, it doesn't really matter if we remember the first drop or the first snowflake. It has to begin somehow. Right? <laughs> I mean, if nobody gives gives any ground, everybody loses. Does does the same kind of apply in, in, in a maybe a much less important but important to your life sense in terms of your work, in terms of being an actor and uh, sometimes not gelling with a filmmaker's vision and 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 mm-hmm. kind of having to meet them halfway or or being the the stubborn actor that like, this is my vision and I'm going to stick with what I want to do. Um, I, I assume that's something you learn over the years of like what, what to give, what to take, how to find a middle ground with a filmmaker that you may or may not be gelling with. Well, I think it's almost, if, if your mantra is 
nobody knows everything. If you just had that in your head. <laughs> that goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, if you start getting all hot and bothered and you kind of getting defensive, just sort of say that to yourself. Nobody knows everything. So maybe somebody here has something, even though it seems to me that they're on the wrong track. Right. Um, I think that if you're talking about actors versus directors, whether the director's a male or female, they are, are an authority figure, right? You as an actor, maybe you've done a lot of research and it often happens that the, that the actor who's playing a role ends up in some ways knowing more about that character if they work really hard on that character yeah. than the director does. And, or that the screenwriter does, you know what I mean? Sure. They're worried, sure. They, they, you know, like the way I like to work, I always ask myself, what happened before page one? Meaning from when the person was born until page one of the script. Usually you have to just make that up. And you can, you can, you can, that can be an extensive exercise trying to, you know, just so that you can react to any situation with that knowledge inside your body, right? So you can easily think, well, I know more than these guys do what this character would do, how they would behave, how they would speak, how they would do this and that. But a good idea can come from anyone at any time. That's what I've learned from, you know, I've been fortunate to work with some very good directors, men, women from different places, different film, filming styles and backgrounds. But that's one of the key things. And I had that in mind as a director, you know, during the shooting of Falling and in the preparation. The other thing is you can never prepare too much or too early for a shoot. And those are the th two things I've really learned from the good directors. But the, but the first thing I mentioned is really important, so much so that on the first day of shooting falling, I said to the cast and crew, I said, I think we've prepared this shoot really well. Marcel, a cinematographer and I and others, we have a really good plan of action on the first AD, what we're gonna do each day and how we're gonna do it. But a good idea can come from any one of you. So don't come to me tomorrow with your good idea or suggestion. Yeah about today's work because it'll be too late. Just bring it on. I'm not going to feel, um, and some directors do feel that, threatened because you have a question or you disagree or you, you have a suggestion. It doesn't matter who you are. It, if I don't, don't want to use the suggestion or the, you know, or the question doesn't prompt me to do something differently than what I'm doing in that moment, uh, so be it. But it might. It might modulate something. It might improve something. It often happens. And so let's make this movie together in that sense. So yes, a director can do that and an actor can feel the director is not listening to them, but it works the other way too. Sure. Actors can be real assholes sometimes. <laughs> so I've heard. And actresses can be real assholes and lazy. And they cover the, their laziness sometimes by just being really opinionated and not really, maybe they're not that informed. And then others right. really do a lot of work and preparation. They've really worked hard and they sincerely believe they know a lot more than the director and they'd stop listening to the director. That's always arrogant, no matter how gently it's done, the ignoring of the direction or the opinions of the director, or, um, even the opinions of your fellow actors, you know? I mean, there's, I've worked with actors who are technically brilliant who come in with, with their role, their scene, moment to moment, prepared. Yeah, they're locked in. the way they want to play it. Yeah. Emotionally, everything they know. At this moment, I'll cry, I'll laugh, I'll do this, I'll dance a little jig now, I'll get it. You know, and, it, and it's great. And sometimes they even won prizes. And it's, and it's fine. But what happens there is that you have to adapt to them right. all the time. And that's, you know, and you do. That you, one thing you have to learn to be 
as a filmmaker and as an actor is is to be flexible you know and actors should be as much filmmakers as directors but what does that mean that means being part of the collective effort if you just say i know how i'm playing this and i'm not going to listen to you you're not being a team player you know you should listen even if you end up dismissing the suggestion you should listen to the director you should listen to other people you know and um and I think you should at least try things sometimes, you know. There's all kinds of situations. Sometimes there are directors who are really unprepared and don't know what they're doing. That does happen. And sometimes you don't want to trust them. You don't want to put on film, like, just try it once this way. Right. And, you know, sometimes you are justified in saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid you might use it, even if you swear up and down you won't. Because either you'll forget, change your mind, or the movie will be taken out of your hands and some producer will make that decision, you know, or editor. So it's a, it's a, it's a balance. I think you just have to listen. And, 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 and directors for actors, in a way, being authority figures are kind of like the father or the mother. You know, they, they are someone that you unconsciously sometimes battle against for reasons that are not clear, just to an objective observer, it's like, what are they fighting about? They're basically on the same track, but there's some psychological right. block there. There are actors who just have a chip on their shoulder. It does happen. And there are directors who have a chip on their shoulder. I try to avoid those people because it's not as much fun to work with them. But I mean, I'd rather work with someone who's really well prepared and then comes ready to play. And let's see what the other person brings to the table. Let's see what the director says. You know, I love, I love directors that like to discuss and leading up to the shoot and during it, that there's a dialogue. You can learn a lot more. You can do a better job, you know? I mean, it, it has to begin somehow. I assume that that applies to uh, someone who pops up in your film. And I feel like there's a joke to be made about David Cronenberg playing a proctologist in your film. I'm not sure what the joke is, <laughs> but there's something there. There isn't really. I know it probably, I mean, you look at that casting, if you know who he is, and not everybody does. You know, I've asked some audiences, Q&As that I've done. I said, how many of you know that that was David Cronenberg, the director playing the proctologist in the scene, you know, where... Willis is being examined and um, like maybe tops 15%, you know, at for, you know, when you first ask that. Right. And then when I ask audiences, generally speaking, when I ask them, did you think that scene was a good scene? And did you think that actor did a good job who played the proctologist? They pretty much all raised their hands. So, well, that was the goal. The reason I asked them to play the part um, was not, like a joke or a wink at the audience. No, it was, he or was even the a right favor. Guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I said to David, I'm not, yeah, it's not. I, I said, David, I'm not asking this as a favor. It's not some like stunt. I just, I've seen your acting and you're good and you're the right type and age and the way you speak, your presence combined with Lance's, I think it would be a good match. It would be fun. Um, and but if you don't want to do it, it's not a problem. When he read the script, he really liked it. He said, "Yeah, sure." And he said, "Well, it'd be easy because we're you know I was shooting in Toronto where he lives." And and he said, "When are you doing it?" I said, "We'll do it next week uh, if you don't mind, and we'll get it done in a half day." And uh, and he said, "Fine." And and it was a good experience. And it's funny thing about that scene. Lance, who didn't have Skype or Zoom or any of this, he had some uh, really old laptop and so my son who lives near him he lives in LA and Lance lives out in the desert about an hour away 
Um, my son Henry got him a uh, helped him find a newer computer and installed, you know, Skype, Zoom. So, because I said to Lance last you know, months ago, I said we're going to have to do because of the pandemic, we're going to have to do most of our interviews with with our computers via yeah, Skype, Zoom. You know, and he says, "What's that?" And that's when I realized. Yeah. So, but now he loves it. And it's like his new toy, right? So he'll call me at all hours of the day or night on Skype, ding, dong, ding. If I haven't closed the lid, it's like, whoa. Um, and it's but, great. We speak almost on a daily basis. It's, it's wonderful. And, well, I, was, and, I was just going to say about Lance. I mean, it's one of the things, like, he's somebody that I've always appreciated <laughs> over the years. And it sounds absurd to say it like this, but, like, it's kind of taking a chance on Lance Henriksen. I mean, he's not the guy that gets money for this film. Um, no, just, it didn't help in that way. I have to say, it didn't help in that way. But I knew that he would be, if he wanted to do it, that he would do something special, more interesting, and more potentially more powerful and real seeming than any other actor yeah. that I could think of. But so when he skyped me the other day, he says, "Hey, I just saw you on the. You know, I've been watching these. You know that YouTube thing." I go, "Yeah." <laughs> what what youtube thing there's millions of them and he goes well no but that that thing you go on youtube and you can watch old stuff and all kinds of interviews i've been watching documentary everything so that's yeah that's great well i saw you and dr klausner doing like what we've been doing lately these you know like you're doing a q a with him about a cronenberg movie and i'm watching this thing and i'm like wait a minute that's cronenberg and I'm like, Lance, are you telling me that when we were shooting that scene, you didn't know that was David Cronenberg? No, how was I supposed to know that? I said, do you know his work? He goes, yes, I've seen pretty much all his movies. I love them. But I didn't know what he looked like. I said, oh, okay. So, because I remember on the day we were shooting that scene, I said to Lance, at the end of the day, because he was like, you know, in his character and doing his gruff thing and sort of almost like a comedy act, his, his replies, his defensive kind of, Right, <laughs> uh, sort of, you know, inappropriate uh, replies to to the doctor throughout that scene. And David went home. We were done, and I said, "Lance, how'd you feel about that? Did you have fun?" And he goes, "Well, yeah, but that guy was awful strict. I mean, he was really—he's not a real proctologist, obviously, but I mean, he really seemed like it." I said, "Well, that's good to hear." Uh, he gave me a run for my money. I'll tell you that. And I said, "Well, good. So you had fun?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, it was great." Was, was, uh, I'm glad you got him to do that, that guy. And I said, okay. I, I didn't realize he had no idea who that Amazing. was. My dad, my dad, you were saying something about my dad and I didn't answer it. I wasn't trying to avoid it. I, oh, I, that's okay. No, my, I mean, I think, I think I got it. I mean, that was uh, to the beginning. My dad, was, wasn't, yeah. my dad was very much a person of his generation. Right. You know? Like uh, ra born in the depression, raised in, on a farm and occupied Denmark during World War II, self-made man. He ran away from home when he was 14, didn't really finish school, but somehow later in life, moved to the United States, taught himself English. He married my mom, put himself, you know, went through, uh, went to business school. My mom would work <laughs> and, and he would work on the side and, you know, he did business school in half the time just by doing night school and all that. Like really determined, but also, in many ways, very inflexible, like many men of that generation. Like right. it's my way or the highway, right? I'm the breadwinner. I worked hard. I've had a tough childhood. 
you know, I'm not going to adapt to you. I'm not going to evolve as you evolve. I'm not going to evolve with you in a relationship. You will adapt to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that was the unspoken thing. And that was typical of many dads at that time. And um, so my dad was that way, but we had better lines yeah. of communication. Than, than did, did he understand your love and appreciation of the arts? Did he get to see your success? And Yeah, he did. I mean, at, at first he was just, looking at it as a practical, you know, typical of him in a way and of that kind of guy. He's, you know, a few years are going by and I kept doing, you know, being a waiter or moving furniture or driving a truck or selling ice cream on the street, you know, just to pay the rent. Yeah. And um, doing, you know, any number of jobs, bartender or whatever. And, um, and going to many, many auditions and every once in a while getting a small part, you know, play or TV or something. And, uh, small parts in movies, not enough to pay the rent though. And he would say, well, I don't know, this doesn't seem to be working. You know, you maybe you should try something else. I, you know, cause he was thinking he was saying the right thing. Cause he yeah, was trying from to be a practical standpoint. Yeah. I don't want you to have a horrible life of constant failure and frustration. And I said, well, dad, I'm interested in, I still want to, I'm feeling kind of stubborn about it. I just want to keep trying. I'm interested in that. I've always loved movies the storytelling aspect of movies and I just I'd like to be part of that so and I stopped talking about it because he would just say things like well if you would just wear like maybe you should wear a suit and a tie to the next interview and I said it's not like that I mean he goes well what's your next interview I said I'm for like a serial killer who just <laughs> right. you know I mean there's no it wouldn't make any sense to comb my hair and wear a suit yeah and tie. I'm trying to become the Amish guy and witness a suit's not going to help me dad <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but he was, he meant well. My mom, on the other hand, who always loved the movies, and I mean, unusually so, as I realized later on in life, that most moms weren't that way. You know, when you're a kid, whatever your mom's like, you think all moms are like that at first, right? She took me to the, the first time I went to a movie theater, I was three, and she took me. And, and I have very clear memories that when I was three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all growing up, and the movies I saw with her. The first movie I can remember from start to finish, from the first time I saw it, how I felt about it, and the conversations I had with my mom in the intermission about it was Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, oh, that, wow. that's what she would do, which is not, not the normal thing. Yeah. And the conversations, even the simple ones in the beginning, were always about isn't it interesting that they didn't show this or that? Mm. Because I, I imagine this is what was really going on in his head or something. Uh, so she would, you know, and as we, I got older, these conversations became more sophisticated. It'd be like dialogue that wasn't there that you could imagine, dynamics that were clear under the surface, but not everything was shown. And, and that probably inspired in me a way of looking at movies, movie right. stories. And, and I, I've always been drawn, I have to say, to movies that, that where the director doesn't tell you what to think and feel every step of the way, doesn't hold your hand, where everything isn't underlined, where there isn't some kind of BS resolve at the end. I, I like to be part of the storytelling, you know? Yeah. I like to wonder about okay, that's not there because this, I'd imagine this is what happened in their relationship to lead to that point and so forth. In other words, Falling, I made, uh, with Falling, I made the kind of movie I would like to go see. Yep. A movie, a movie where if by virtue of its visual quality or storytelling 
approach, the first 10, 15 minutes, I'm in, then I'm in as a storyteller. I'm going to, I mean, the movie's going to become as much mine as yours. Um, you know, you who've directed it or written it or anything. And, and, and I'll have opinions about it and I'll, I'll take part, you know, in other words, and I think it's a way really of respecting the audience's intelligence. People are not as dumb as marketing people often seem to think or, or studios sometimes think. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's how that worked. My, and my mom was there for when I started trying to act, even though I wasn't getting anywhere for years. She was interested in each step and uh, almost so interested that it, it drove me crazy sometimes. Like I would, I, you know, if I would, she would say, well, who's, who else is in it? I said, I don't know yet, mom. It's just a part. It's just one scene. And I, well, why don't you find out? And, and what's the director's name? And I would say the name. I said, I'm not sure what he's, I'll tell you what he's done. He's done this and that. She would know often. <laughs> and, and it was, it was a good experience. The first couple of movies I was in where I had speaking parts, I was cut out of. And Purple Rose of Cairo is one, right? Purple Rose of Cairo, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Swing Shift, Jonathan Denver. Oh. And in neither case did the director, not that they have to, but I think directors should, especially speaking parts, um, let me know that I wasn't in the movie. And each time I told my mom, you know, I was always following everything I was doing very carefully. Well, it's next Friday. It's coming out, Mom. And, you know, it'll, it'll, we'll, it will be in the theater near you the week after. And... Uh, We'll talk about it then, you know, and then I get a phone call and she says, you're not even in the credits, much less in the movie. What the hell are you talking about? I said, well, sometimes it happens, I guess. It's, you ever heard of the cutting room floor? She goes, yes, of course I have. So you were cut out of the movie. I go, yeah. I go, okay, well, that's what happens. And then, then about a year later, it happened again with Swing Shift. And I had done the same thing. I said, well, this is also a good scene. It's also funny and this dialogue and I think you'll like it. And, I don't want to ruin it for you. I won't tell you the scene, but wasn't in it. So she calls me. She goes, look, and this is in the early 80s. And she says, um, I, you know, I've heard of this crack thing down in New York. Is that what you're doing? Because you're not doing movies. <laughs> you're coming up with really interesting academic. stories. But <laughs> I said, no, mom, I was in it. I swear to God, I can show you my contract. Um, I'm a member of the union because of it, thankfully. So. I have that, and uh, but then I'll be in the next one, maybe. We'll and, and then many, many years later, here's something I noticed while I was looking at the credits. You're thanked in the credits for Thin Red Line. I assume you shot with Terrence Malick, and it just, like several other actors, it just, uh, it didn't end. I am end thanked it. in the credits for that? Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, I'll tell you why. Because um, at the time I was offered Walk on the Moon, a movie I did with Diane Lane that Tony Goldwyn shot, um, takes place in 1969 summer of Woodstock on the moon landing. Um, I was offered, I mean, he actually came to me and he said, I want the first two people I want to cast are you and Sean Penn. What part would you like to play? And I said, which part? Whatever, let's talk about it. And, and it, it was, I had wonderful, some wonderful conversations with Terrence Malick. And, but the way it worked out, I couldn't do that movie. It didn't work out. You know, I wish I wish I had been in it, but I we did talk a lot. We talked a lot about stories, so maybe I didn't realize that. Maybe I mean, thanks because we had some good conversations. Or there were some things I mentioned to him that he may have used for one character. I won't tell you what. Okay. um, So maybe that's why. 
I'm curious, you're, you know, the, the, obviously the, the films that always come up among others in your career are the Lord of the Rings films and your relationship to that series, which more, more so than many other films, you know, we talk about sort of like, you were talking about this in relation to Falling or any kind of complex film, they've kind of become the audience's film. Lord of the Rings films are the world's films now. <laughs> like they belong to billions of people. And you have your personal experience, and then then a billion people have their very personal experience with it. Mm-hmm. Is that an interesting kind of relationship to have to that I film love, now? I love that. I mean, I love that even with Falling, which is a much smaller undertaking and all that. But in going around and 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 see, seeing, you know, there, there's so many times when I have to do a and A in person with people. And I've been able to tour Europe a little bit carefully by car, masks, gel, distance, right. all that. But with live audiences, and I'll go in and typically, you know, I'll present the movie and say, I'll be back at the end and answer your questions, right? And usually you go and you get a bite to eat and you come back, right? But I always like to watch the first few minutes just to make sure that the sound and, the, you know, the brightness of the screen and everything is right, because then you can make an adjustment otherwise with the projectionist because you want people to see the movie in the best possible way, right? And hear it, right? And, um, but there's something I just start to enjoy it's as much the movie, more so just how people are reacting. Yeah. For better or worse, just I'm interested in each place, each audience, and each place it's slightly different. And so I'll, I usually aim to see the first 10 minutes. And so many times I've ended up sitting through the whole thing just because I'm interested in what the vibe is in this dark room, you know, with all of us looking and listening. Each audience is different. And I love that that happens, that by the end, which is what I want, right? The movie is, belongs to them more than me in a way. And when I right. go up and answer questions, sometimes it's surprising. Somebody will make an observation dead certain that the reason this scene happened was because of X, Y, or Z. And it's something I'd never consciously thought of. I said, well, you may be right. Or this is clearly an homage to such and such a director, such and such a movie, or this is in the style of no, I don't know what. I said, all of what you're saying is possible. I assume that subconsciously every life experience and certainly every movie I've seen has affected me. I wasn't consciously copying anybody, but you may be right. So people have interpretations and then bring their own family stories and lives, you know. To, to what they see always. And I love, I love that. And I like that Lord of the Rings means something different to each person and that they take ownership of it, some people, you know. But that, I've seen that happen even with movies like Fallen. So. Um, we talked a little bit about Cronenberg. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about a little bit, at least some of the films. You did three films with him. Hopefully there's at least one more. I, I, I want David to direct again soon, desperately. We're working on it. it oh, good. If we're lucky, it'll happen this year. To be oh, amazing, person. amazing. Um, Eastern Promises, there's a lot of uh, that character is just, I know, one of your favorites, I think, and one of many people's favorites. Um, the infamous uh, <laughs> naked bathhouse fight. Is that in the script? Is that something you would do for any director? Or is that something, again, like Cronenberg? When Cronenberg has an idea like that, you're like, okay, I'll go there. I'll, uh, no, it was in the script. There wasn't yeah. much description. It just said in the bathhouse and, you know, there's this horrible fight. Um, so we we... I worked with a stunt coordinator and we worked out while in the early weeks of shooting, we worked out a choreography and presented to David, see what he thought. He made an adjustment and then we, you know, we just worked it out like a, like a dance really with the other, the other two performers. And, um, 
at one point I said, I'm looking at this practically. I'm seeing what's written on the page, David, and we have this choreography. You know, obviously we, everybody has towels on and so forth, but there's no believable way in hell that a towel is going to stay on the whole fight, I don't think. <laughs> he goes, no. I said, so I think you're going to have to do it, you know, pretty much naked all the way, you know. Um, I mean, he goes, no, you're going to have to do it. I go, yeah, no, I know, but I mean, we're going to have to do it. <laughs> I didn't say that, but, um, and so that's just how it happened. Um, had it been another director, you know, who knows? Right. Again, that trust factor. I do have trust with him and not only as a director, but as a person, I mean, we're friends. We became friends while we were working on history of violence and, and we've kept up conversation ever since, you know, that's 16 years ago now that we shot history of violence and we've we've kept up a dialogue not just about movies about life family politics history you know all kinds of stuff well i'm hardened to hear that there might be another collaboration excellent um it's no surgery (laughs) life death everything the new york mets is he a fan he's not he's a he's a he's a big uh he's a big I don't know, fan actually. Blue Jays, and, yeah. Yeah, and he's, you know, because he is such a, he's really smart and he's got a certain both philosophical but also a very analytical bent. And so he loves the, I think he likes the baseball stats and stuff like that right. too. <laughs> I did take him one time. We were in New York and we were promoting, I think it was History of Violence actually. And I did say, you know, I'm a, I'm a Met fan and there's a game tonight. I can't remember who they were playing, but if you want to go, I think we can get a good seat. I know the third baseman. And we, we did get a good. Uh, <laughs> we did get, um, we did get uh, great third baseman, right? And uh, sure. And uh, we did get a pretty good, you know, behind the plate, not right behind the plate, but you know, sort of near, not 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 first row, but like a, a nice nice place to watch. And uh, we had a great time. It was fun. I, I have to say, I'm pretty surprised given, I know your son Henry's a big comic book guy and nature of the, of the business in recent years, but by all accounts, you've been offered, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like you were offered Man of Steel, a role in Batman Begins, the Liam Neeson role, I believe, a role in Joker, maybe even Doctor Strange. There have been a lot of offers. Have you come close to any- Doctor Strange. Okay. Yeah. But the, the others sound about right? The, uh, some, some- yeah, some of those sound right, yeah. So have yeah. any of those, has Henry said, you know, this role was right for you, Dad? Really go after it, or no? No. No. Henry's a comic book encyclopedia. He knows right. everything about DC, Marvel, and that other comic book lines. But um, no. I mean, if I have a doubt, and it is that sort of thing, and there's something about the story and the director, and but especially the story, for me, I always story comes first sure i don't care who the director is when i first read the script i just want to see is this something that i would want to see you know i know that's subjective but it's like would i want to go see this and and if i think it's that good a story is the part that i could play or that i could audition for and i'm being considered for does that part scare me a little bit and right. if so, does it scare me because I'm not sure I'm up to it and it's something I haven't tried yet? Or does it 
worry me because I think I'm absolutely not the right casting for it, so, mm. which is slightly different. So. But if I have a doubt and I'm thinking, eh, it's not bad, and it was a comic book thing, I would definitely show it to Henry and get his opinion, of course. Do you, do you ever feel regret after the fact, like when you watch like what Hugh did with Wolverine, which is another role that I think he famously no. passed on? I don't. No, I mean, I think he did great. I can't, I, I'm sure no one can imagine anyone doing it better than he did anyway. So uh, I think the thing that bothered me at the time was just the commitment of, right. you know, endless movies of that same character over and over. I was, I was nervous about that, I think. And also there were some things, I mean, they did straighten most of them out, but I, I did take Henry to the meeting I had with the director for that. Right. And uh, it was in LA and he had like the little models and things and you know, figures already what he was going to do. And, and I, well, I asked, I said, can I bring my son? You know, he's 10 or whatever he was, maybe he's not. He knows a lot about this. And uh, that's his favorite comic book character at, the, at this moment, Wolverine. He knows everything. So I'd love to bring him, you know, as my sort of good luck charm and guide. And and in the back of my mind, I was thinking, and you might learn something. <laughs> because I did let Henry read it. And he goes, this is wrong. This is wrong. That's not how it is. And so we went. I said, be polite, though. you know. And so we went. And when he gave me a tour, showed me drawings. And it was a very nice conversation. And at the time, I actually had sideburns kind of like that. I'd done the <laughs> walk on the moon. Oh, so sure, I yeah. I mean, Henry was, uh, yeah, he was about that. Maybe it was eight or nine, eight, something, eight maybe. And um, and then Henry did start to speak up. I, and while Henry is sort of looking and the director said, do you, do you know this character? He goes, yes, but it doesn't look like this. And, <laughs> and he says, no, I know. And then all of a sudden the, the director's falling all over himself and the kind of the rest of the meeting was him explaining in detail to Henry why he was taking certain liberties, right? It was a great, it was a great meeting. Um, and it was nice. It was friendly and all that. But we walked out of there, and I, I said, he said, do you think he's going to change those things that I told him about? I said, I said, I don't think so. He might change one or two things, but I don't think he's really, I think they've decided what they're going to do. But I'm not going to do it anyway. <clears throat> he goes, just because I said that? I go, no, 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 because I just don't, I, I'm not sure that I want to be doing this for years. And, and then, you know, a couple of years later, I'm doing three Lord of the Rings, so who knows? <laughs> yeah. um, and involved for years on something but but there was something there was something about the lord of the rings and tolkien the source source material and 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 tolkien's own source material which has always been of interest to me you know and you know celtic mythology and literature and especially nordic um mythology and literature and history and so all those things combined made it for a unique experience i have to say that the more so than the movies themselves it was the actual experience of shooting right it was so wonderful uh not just the friendships which was great and have and they have you know endured but it was watching peter jackson and his team of relatively inexperienced and in some cases very inexperienced hundreds of crew members mostly new zealanders who didn't have experience making a movie like that Neither did Peter, frankly, at that point. And, um, but his crew members really didn't know anything about that. And there wasn't, there was a history of filmmaking and some very good filmmakers um, from New Zealand, but not a ton, you know? So 
most of the crew members, if they'd worked at all, had worked a little bit on TV and on some small movies. Watching them solve any number of big and small problems on a daily basis, you know, in terms of how do you get this shot? How do we deal with this logistical problem? Weather, anything, just technical things. The way they would just make shit up and find a way yeah. under Peter's leadership was extraordinary. I mean, that was really like a very intensive film school. If you wanted to hang out and, and pay attention to everything that was going on, and you know, a lot of people did, including me. It was just, that was, that was a hell of an experience. Just watching that, watching them come up with new ways to deal with old problems and, 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 and ways to do with, deal with new problems too. New problems that they created for themselves. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh shit, now we've gotten into that. How are we gonna tell that? Yeah, well, I, yeah. I love those experiences as an audience member where you, you watch a movie and it almost feels like they, this, this merry band of crazy people escaped to a, a country with a studio's money and just figured it out. Whether it's like Mad Max, which I always happened, talk about, you know? or, or The Rings, yeah, exactly. I mean, some producers did show up every once in a blue moon, but it was far away and we were shooting. And I think the unspoken agreement was, let's see how the first one turns out, right? Right. And to be honest, by the time we finished, you know, almost a year and a half of shooting, the first, the material for the first movie, that was pretty much there, although they had to do a little bit of reshooting, but um they weren't going to give much money to do that because then let's see what happens, see if the movie makes any money at all. But the first one was pretty tight. The second and third one weren't. You know, they they need they definitely needed some more work and reshoots. And um, well, when the first one came out and became a box office sensation, um, that changed everything. Then, of course, money was available to go and do reshoots, which meant that as actors, we had to go it wasn't just a year and a half. It ended up being like three and a half years, you know, going back and going, going back and doing it. And it was great. I mean, I just, and you could see how the crew had grown each summer. We'd go back. It was tremendous each well, their winter, our summer, but uh, yeah. And at that time it was all new since then and the Hobbit and all the other movies that have gone to New Zealand to shoot. Now there was established, you know, top notch world-class, facilities everything that you could imagine and and people you know skilled crews it's like you know canada created an infrastructure that you know, yeah. shot in, yeah. in toronto and vancouver that you know you have some of the best crews there that's why i knew shooting falling in ontario province where i'd worked before i knew they were great right it was a great pool of talent there you know so will you potentially be back up north in canada shooting with cronenberg what can you say anything about what that would be um i think he would normally always like to shoot you know, at home yeah. in, in Canada, but I don't, I think it's not going to be there. I think it's, it's all these vagaries of co-productions. It depends. Yeah. There's a couple of countries they're talking about, but I neither of them are Canada. So I think he's going to have to shoot it away from the comforts of home. Got it. But another but memorable, interesting. I'm just glad he's eager to do it again. Me too. Me too. Uh, the world is a better place when David Cronenberg is creating some, some I art. Um, You've been very generous with your time, especially on this historic day. Um, thank you, Vigo, for the time. And I, and I really encourage everybody to check out Falling. As you can tell from this conversation, it's, um, it's a special piece of work with some really extraordinary performances. It doesn't answer questions, but that's not what great art does. It poses the questions. And, I, um, I, would, I would say to you that, and to your audience that 
if for no other reason, go see it for what Lance Henriksen does. You know, this is an actor who's had just a crazy life, really harrowing childhood, a man who couldn't even read until he was 30, who's now at this point at 80 years of age, he's done almost 300 movies. <laughs> but this movie, this is the first time he's had a role, I think, like this in a way. And it's like when you watch all his movies, it doesn't matter how out there the genre is or how unclassifiable or how you know, odd the story he's in or brief his appearance in any of his movies. There's something about him that always gets your attention. Yes. He's a completely 100% committed actor. I always felt that. That's why I wanted him to play this part. Because I know he's got the ability and he has that presence, that voice, that face. He would just, he'll just, he's going to surprise people with this, I think. I had no idea he would do as much with it as he did. It's just beyond my wildest dreams. And, and I have to say, it's one of the, bravest, more layered, disturbing, um, thought-provoking performances I've seen. And one of the most honest performances I've seen in a long time. You're not going to catch him acting. It's really, it's something else. And I think it's a performance that'll stand the test of time. You know, I, I'd like to see him get recognition for it now. Yeah. So and savor that. But, but I know it will stand the test of time. So if for no other reason... Um, go go see it to see Lance's fine work in this movie. Well, you're a smart enough man to surround yourself with the right people. And yes, Lance Henry can, can never go wrong with uh, hiring Lance Henriksen. So um, again, thanks for the generous time today, Vigo. Stay one, safe out one there. One last piece. Yeah, please. Apart, no, please. Apart yeah. from Happy New Year and happy and healthy New Year to, to everyone. Um, and good luck to Joe Biden <laughs> and uh, Kamala Harris. Um, I would say to anybody who's had the patience to listen to our conversation and especially listen to me. If you don't agree or you think I'm just, just a blabbermouth, that's fine. But, and uh, I say that, you know, with respect to you in the spirit of Aristotle, who said um, something like that, it's the sign of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. So as long as you've listened, I thank you. <laughs> put a perfect bow on this conversation thanks again man thank you and so ends another edition of happy sad confused remember to review rate and subscribe to this show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts i'm a big podcast person i'm daisy ridley and i definitely wasn't pressured to do this by josh 